0: Lifestyle
1: choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now, here's your host, Lee Richardson.
2: Well, thanks for joining us today. I think we've got a pretty interesting show. We've got Dr. Jennifer Barr. She's an ND, and she's the founder and chief medical officer of Resilience Naturopathic, a practice developed to making PANS and PANDAS a thing of the past and homeopathy, the medicine of the future. And I certainly am a supporter of that. Her commitment stems (laughs) from her personal experience as a child who would have been diagnosed with PANS had she been born 20 years later than she was. Her life's work is dedicated to bringing awareness to PANS and PANDAS, teaching the world about the healing power of homeopathy, and changing the outcome for the children and families that are suffering. Dr. Barr is a graduate of Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine, as well as the University of Maryland, where she earned her BS in Physiology and Neurobiology. She also proudly served the US Navy as an Arabic linguist. That's something to be proud of. All of it. <laughs> but you must ha- you must be very talented in the language area.
1: Some people would say so. It's been a while since I've actually practiced, so it's hard to
2: say no. <laughs> well, you know, you yeah, it it's so glad to have you on the show because I have to be honest with you. Probably five years ago, I knew what pans and pandas was. But it was in relation to two clients. And that was about all I knew. And I was just, I didn't know anything. And what made Mm -hmm. me more frustrated was I didn't know how to help them. And I'm, you know, I think that, and maybe in my world, it's been five years, maybe in your world, it's been 20. But tell me about kind of how the pans and the pandas has developed and, and how that's become one of your expertise.
1: Uh, so you want to know about Pants and pandas and how how it became my expertise, not how it develops in a in an individual who's experiencing it. Just to be clear. Well,
2: either way, just to, you know, either I love to okay. hear a story, so usually you
1: know it kind <laughs> Stories. of Stories, yeah. <laughs> so um, I can I can sort of go about way, and, and you know I'll answer questions. You interrupt me if I'm if I'm going off on a tangent, and you've got you've got questions for sure. I'm happy to to be interrupted at any point. Um, so. I always tell people pans and pandas wasn't something I chose to be an expert in. It's something that chose me. Um, and it chose me because I I did choose it to be, um, focused and have a a particular specialty, um, working with people with mental health conditions because of my own personal history, family history, and just seeing the options that people had in the mental health realm, um, that were, um, not great at best (laughs) and really problematic at worst. Um, And so it was through that work in a broader mental health-focused practice that PANS and PANDAS started showing up and knocking on my door. Um, And it it first showed up with somebody who didn't even realize that they had it, and I caught it because I have had um, some previous education about it. So I caught it and figured out that that's what was going on, and word spread that I was having some success, and more and more of it came to me. And I'll be perfectly honest, I actually fought against it for a while because um, Pans and Pandas, as we'll talk about here, I'm sure, uh, over the course of our, our time together, is a really complex condition. It's really complicated, lots and lots of moving parts, things that should work, don't, and it can get really confusing and overwhelming. And there's not a lot of support for families who are dealing with it um, in the medical co- community. Um, and so parents end up becoming medical investigators themselves. And so not only are you dealing with a really complex condition you're dealing with parents who are traumatized children who are in crisis and these exhausted traumatized parents who are staying up all hours of the night reading medical journals trying to figure out what's going on because they're getting nowhere with the experts that they're seeing to get medical help and so all of those reasons that you know just made it really really hard uh to work with and so I pushed against it some um but it just kept coming and kept coming and one of the reasons that started to dawn on me that it kept coming is because parents were telling me I understood their kids in a way that, that nobody else really seemed to understand. I understood what they were experiencing, their, their families were experiencing, I understood what their children were, were experiencing. Uh, and it took me uh, some really in-depth conversations with my, my mom about my past, my brother's past, um, and the kids that I was, was working with to recognize that, oh, I, I actually probably had this as a kid, and so did my brother. And I, I figured out that my brother likely did first, um, and then the more I really understood Pans and Pandas and really talked to my mom and, and thought about my past, I recognized that, like I said, I likely did too. Um, so that's how it came to me um, with the, the, uh, the expertise and the specialty um, in Pans and Pandas. And the reality is that once I recognized that this was something that was... Um, you know, divine intervention, universe sending to me, whatever it is that you want to say. And I stopped fighting against it. And I decided rather than to fight against it, I need to focus exclusively on that. Um, and believe it or not, that actually made things much easier because it's really easy to deal with one complex condition instead of trying to deal with 20 complex conditions. Uh, and that's really where I started to see um, some really great um, improvement and great understanding of uh, in my myself with how to manage these these cases um, which is what has helped lead to some uh, great success for a lot of kiddos that we work with
2: um, oh, no, it's, inter- it's interesting because you yeah. you said you mentioned that you you had it as a child and your brother had it was it did anybody suggest that to you or was it just overlooked completely
1: so Pandas was not actually defined as a condition until 1998. I was born in 1979, so I was far too old for it to have ever been something that was recognized. Um, When we first started to define what pandas was, we were really only looking at kids So, just to be clear, in case anybody's not familiar with what PANS and PANDAS means, PANS stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. PANDAS is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Stress. PANDAS is essentially a subset of PANS. It's just more clearly defined and has a very specific cause, very specific constellation of symptoms, whereas PANS is more broad. Basically, most things that can cause a trigger of an activation of the immune system. Could potentially cause, uh, the symptoms of pans or pandas. Um, and so, or sorry, of pans. Pandas is specifically with strep. Um, so when they first started looking at pandas specifically, um, they were really only looking at kids between the ages of three to 12 when people are most likely to get strep and most exposed to strep. And in fact, the diagnostic criteria requires that they have onset between ages three and 12. I technically had that onset between ages three and 12, as did my brother. Um, but by the time that we were getting treated, we were getting treated by, you know, psychiatrists and, and other doctors who had not yet heard of, 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 um, pans or pandas. And, and by the time that they, it was starting to be defined, we were, um, outside of the pediatric realm, uh, of, of psychiatry anyway. Um, so yeah, it was never even considered. It's, it, there's a lot of folks who are walking around with mental health diagnoses that I'm certain if they looked back in their history, would recognize that they actually had um, onset in childhood, and that it would have met the criteria for PAMS.
2: Wow! So, yeah, you said in the beginning, I didn't choose it; it chose me. And yeah. how how common is it? I mean, it happened to you and your brother. How common is it? Yeah. So
1: right now, the estimate is one in 200 kids, but I think that that's probably a bit um, low. Uh, I think that it likely happens in more kids and that we're just not recognizing the immune factor um, associated with these kiddos who are exhibiting behavioral and, and psychiatric type symptoms. Um, so I, I think that it will probably someday find out that it's much more than we think it is currently, but right now, the current estimate is one in 200 kids experiences. So not a small number.
2: No, not at all. And does that start at what age does that start at?
1: So it can really start at almost any age. So maybe we should back up and actually talk about what PANS and PANDAS looks like just to give people a context in case they're, you know, considering whether maybe their kid is is experiencing this. So um, as I said, PANS is, is Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. PANDAS is the Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep. Um, what this looks like is generally um, fluctuating symptoms. Um, It's going to have usually OCD. um, And for PANS, it could have what's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID, um, which I sort of consider uh, like a sister of OCD because ARFID um, is not like what you would typically see with like an anorexia type of food restriction um, where there's concerns about body and body dysmorphia the body dysmorphia can be present in pans kids. That's generally not the driving factor for um, a desire to restrict food. Um, the desire for strict, restrict food usually comes with like fears about getting sick, fears of being poisoned, fears of choking. Um, so intrusive and repetitive uh, thoughts that are leading them to be afraid to actually eat. Um, so it generally has some sort of OCD component and then there can be rapidly changing moods. Um, there can be intense rage sudden onset separation anxiety, so kids who are happy to go to school um, overnight, now afraid to go to school, kids who can sleep through the night by themselves in their own room suddenly can't sleep at all or won't sleep without mom and dad, um, crawling, old, even older kids crawling into their parents' bed when they're like 17 years old. Um, there are also um, some physical changes that we'll see. So I already mentioned that sleep can be really significantly disrupted, both from anxiety and just having um, sleep onset or sleep um, maintenance issues. Um, there can also be, um, um, sorry, enuresis, so um, involuntary urination um, can happen during the day or at night. And these are kids who are having um, no issues prior, so kids who've been previously potty trained, bedwetting. Um, kids can also have like if they're not even having full enuresis they can have like weird sensations that we call phantom wetness where they feel like they're wet all the time and need to constantly wipe or or change their clothes repeatedly um changes in handwriting or drawing it can go from being pretty neat to quite messy behavioral and cognitive regressions come on too so these are kids who um are developing appropriately and um behaving uh, age appropriate and then Suddenly, start acting like they're much younger. Have regressions in um, specifically reading comprehension and math. Um, so, having issues in school. Um, so, kids who are doing great suddenly really starting to struggle. Um, and then tics are uh, another component that we'll see with a lot of these kids, where they have those involuntary mo- uh, motor movements, oh, and sometimes vocal tics as well.
2: So, does it do- the two clients that I had? been exposed to it with they were fine and then one day something changed and it was just yeah and it can be came on overnight yeah yeah it can
1: be um for a lot of kids it will be overnight but there's a lot of kids that it's not overnight too and that's that can be a common misconception um that that it has to be sudden onset um and so it, 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 it can be um, relapsing and remitting too. So basically where we have a flare of symptoms and then they go back to being quote-unquote normal and then have another flare of symptoms and then quote-unquote normal. Um They can get a, a round of antibiotics and everything is great until the antibiotics stop and then it comes back. Or even one round of antibiotics and they're good for a while until they get strep again or they get mycoplasma again or whatever they happen to be triggered by, um, they get exposed to again. And so what we usually see is um like what it's like an incline sawtooth pattern where it gets progressively worse and that sometimes then a lot of kids will just get sort of stuck in a flare where they're just constantly um in a a rough spot instead of just having like ups and downs and so this is where it can get tricky for some folks is that those ups and downs can be excused as like oh they're going through a developmental leap or oh this is a a normal developmental stage kids all kids have ticks and they just come and go and they're told people are told that by pediatricians a lot and so there can be early signs that people miss or excuse as just sort of a developmental thing that will go away and they don't realize that it's actually a flare of something that's building up over time and so impl- people will look is it back like inflammation? Say, it, it, it. yes so the um what is the understanding of what is likely occurring is that when specifically with strep, because that's the one that's been tested um, or not tested but in, um, investigated most. So we, what we understand it to be happening is that the um, the body goes in and, and uh, tries to fight off strep, and strep gets really, really smart and it says, "Hey, I don't really want to be killed by the immune system." And so it goes through this process called molecular mimicry, and what this means is that it basically tries to make itself look like us. So it will put these little proteins on the surface of the cell to they're similar to our our um, cell surface proteins, so that we will think for a short period of time that the um, the strep is actually part of us. It's like you know, I'll so say it's like walking around wearing a Dr. Barr mask, but pretty soon you're going to figure out that's a Dr. Barr mask. That's not actually Dr. Barr. And so the immune system broadens its attack to include those cells, but then it overdoes it and it starts attacking our own cells as well. And so that's where we start to see, um, the immune response getting elevated and inflammation is part of the immune response. Um, and we, there are some studies that have shown that there is inflammation, um, and antibodies that are specifically targeted at the basal ganglia. Um, and that there is some um, evidence of leaky brain or blood-brain barrier and permeability um, as a result of the inflammation and the uh, the whole the process of antibodies that are formed um, to the the various receptors in the uh, basal ganglia.
2: So, how do you explain yeah, this to complex. parents? I mean, I'm listening to you and I get it, but on because of what I do, my work with the brain. But I'm thinking, how would I explain that to parents? You
1: know, I try to make it really, really simple, especially because my area of expertise is homeopathy. And so what it really comes down to for these families is that their kiddo has a susceptibility to this type of reaction overall. So, you know, if we put 10 people in my office here and they all got exposed to stress, most of them would get a sore throat and a fever, and they would fight it off after a couple of days, maybe need a round of antibiotics, probably need a round of antibiotics, and they're mostly going to be fine. A couple of those kids might end up having issues with their heart because they have that susceptibility to having a heart issue as a result of, of prolonged stress. Um, some of them might have um, some, some impacts on their kidneys. Um, and then the other kids are going to end up having the, the um, response responses pandas, Right. And so the specific susceptibility that you have is what homeopathy really addresses. And so I tend to talk to parents rather than going through all of these things because the reality is there are... More questions than answers right now about, with, with all of the research that we're doing with, with pans and pandas. Um, it's great that we're trying to understand more about what's happening, but it leads to more questions than answers. And what our parents need when the rubber hits the road is they need answers because it doesn't really matter what we understand for kids, um, in this condition in 30 years. What matters is can this kid go to school today? Can mom go back to work? Because where she, which she had to leave because her kid it was that impaired that she can't safely leave her child. Um, so she had to, to leave her work. Um, so that's really where, where my focus is and helping people to understand is more about how homeopathy is coming in and making such a difference for these families where um, other things are not working for them.
2: Well, I mean, from a medical perspective, what do they have to offer? And I don't mean that in a negative way. Mm-hmm. I just don't see a, a connection.
1: Yeah, so that's one of the things that, is, that can be really challenging and where this like susceptibility piece comes in to be so important because from the medical perspective, we're really looking at, um, killing bugs, suppressing inflammation, and then forcing biochemistry in the brain with uh, psychotropic medications. So those are the, like the, the initial stage intervention is antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, um, so you could use something like ibuprofen or a steroid burst, um, and then, um, Psych medications, so specifically SSRIs, are generally the first-line intervention for these kids. Um, gratefully, they do look at the fact that these kids tend to be really, really sensitive, and so they need a much lower dose than average um, if they are going to use an SSRI. But a lot of these kids have a lot of negative impacts um, from SSRIs, whether it's because of some of the genetic variants that there are more prevalent in this community um, or just because it's not really addressing the actual problem. Uh, which, again, is that susceptibility and the, the fact that the body is having this response to strep or mold or mycoplasma or Lyme or whatever the trigger happens to be. Um, so once that intervention fails, and generally what will happen is that we'll see antibiotics will be helpful for a little while, and then they stop. And so then we have to do another round or add more or keep people on constant antibiotics. And usually even when they're on constant antibiotics, it stops being quite as effective. Um, And so we have to add another antibiotic or give a more heavy-duty antibiotic, a broader antibiotic. We ramp up the anti-inflammatories that we're using. We ramp up the, the psych meds. And then we go to more um, significant interventions like uh, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy to try and remove those crypts that the um, bacteria can actually sort of hide in. Um, kids will get IVIG, which is intravenous, intravenous immunoglobulin, basically pooled blood blood products from thousands of people, giving those immunoglobulins the way to try and reset the immune system. Um, for some people it seems to be miraculous on that first uh round, but it it for a lot of people tends to wane over time. And some people actually get worse right up front from it. I personally have some it, it just makes me nervous. Like I know for a lot of people it's miraculous and I'm not uh discounting that at all. Um, but for some people when, it especially when the kids, they get worse, and it makes me just so nervous because these kids are so sensitive that, um, having anything that we, you know, once upon a time, we didn't know that we needed to screen for HIV in the blood, sh- um, the blood pool, um, the blood bank. Um, and so anything that, that we don't know that we need to screen for, I'm just concerned that these kids are going to find and, um, react to, um. So that, But that's um, one of the, the mainstays that people are doing left and right. And then if, if and when that fails, um, there's the higher levels with people using um, things like Rituxan to try and completely suppress the immune system um, and plasmapheresis, where they're basically trying to clean out the blood and stick it back in to um, remove the antibodies. Um, and so just really some significant uh, interventions are, are recommended. And there are some therapies that, that can be recommended as well that have uh, varying degrees of success, again, because we're not necessarily dealing with um, just habits here, even though there are like habit reversal therapy or exposure response prevention for, um, for OCD and, and tics. Um, we're not just dealing with, with strictly tics or OCD. We're dealing with inflammation and an autoimmune response in the body. And so just doing those therapies can have, um, in some cases, limited efficacy.
2: Well, you know, it's amazing to me because it, the you've made it sound so I understand what's going on, but it's also so very scary that you yeah. know it can affect so many different levels of you of your physiology and your your emotional status, and I can't imagine being a young child and going to school and have no control over my bladder
1: that was one of my first signs for me when I, I was really thinking back through. And I, I remember the times that I, I was a obviously fully potty trained child. I was in first grade and completely lost control of my bladder, like like completely like just wet myself in um, multiple circumstances, like in the middle of, of my classroom, in the middle of the day, like in circle time, uh, reading a book. Uh, I remember that really clearly. And it was the most embarrassing thing um, to have happened. And, and, times when I felt um, as a child, like, like I had lost control of myself and like, you know, had some significant anger with rage and violence toward my my brothers and um, really scary, intrusive thoughts at night about people coming to harm me that made it really, really hard to um, be in a room by myself at night. Uh, And I definitely did not want to be. Um, I stuck it out and I I made it happen, but I would stay awake for hours thinking about all the ways that I was going to get killed in the middle of the night or fires that were going to happen and I was going to have to jump out of my second story window. It was, was, um, it was really hard. Uh, and definitely to think that, um, to think that you're going crazy or that your brain is broken or that, you know, something is wrong with you, um, at a time when you're really starting to get a better understanding of social connections. It's, it's definitely hard.
2: So did you talk to your mom about it or did you were you afraid she'd think you were crazy or
1: yeah I, I didn't ever talk to my mom about it. I ended up getting help um, when it got so bad that my mom talked to me about it um, but that didn't happen until I was sixteen. We just dealt with like my fluctuating moods and all the stuff um, until i was until I was sixteen and I got really really depressed um, and my mom sat me down and, and said, Hey, I think we need to go see a doctor about this. And, and it had gotten bad enough that I was um, coming home from school and laying on the couch and going to sleep. And I would wake up to have dinner and then maybe do some homework and maybe not. And then go back to sleep. My grades were slipping. I went from like a really generally a straight A student to like never turning things in and grades really falling. And, and to my parents' credit, My younger brother had a more clear case of pandas than me. Mine was more of that insidious, like, if you look back, you can put it all together. And and what looked like the fluctuating moods and just anger um, and, you know, control of, uh, like, temper issues um, adds up to to a complete picture when you put them all together. Um, My brother had a very sudden onset overnight where he was fine one day and then the next day you he, he had really intrusive thoughts about being afraid of dying and he was throwing a fit every night and my parents tried to put him to sleep and he was certain if he fell asleep he was going to die um and so my brother unfortunately had a, a more severe sudden onset more like classical case than I did and they were um very very overwhelmed with dealing with him and so I think I probably got missed a little bit because I was able to cope um, a little
2: bit more than he was. You know, wow. We've got like three minutes left before we go to break and we've given, we've given our listeners a lot of information. So, and listening to you describe what you experienced and what your brother was experiencing, there's some red flags, but to yeah. me, the challenge is that like, I, when I asked you, so did you talk to your mom about this? Because I know mm-hmm. I would be thinking, I'm not gonna tell her this. She's gonna think I'm crazy. So for what can you know, we got two minutes before break. What can you tell folks out there to look for? I would just say any if your kiddo is looking like they're
1: struggling, if they're starting to withdraw, so it's it's not just rage that you need to look at. It doesn't need to be screaming in your face, but if they are starting to withdraw. Um, if their grades are changing, even if you notice that, that their like handwriting is getting messier, um, sleep is shifting, it might be something to just really turn your attention to and then maybe start to have some conversations and, and ask them what they're thinking about. Because I wasn't able to tell my mom all of the things that I was thinking about and all the things that I was worried about because um, it was even scary to, to talk about them. And so it took her coming to me to make it feel safe.
2: I mean, I can't even imagine having those thoughts and then trying to figure out at a young age how to deal with them. So that's sure. it's as much emotional as it is physical, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. For in, in many cases, it actually feels more so um, because the emotions are so overwhelming and so overpowering.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, I've. It's amazing to me that. Uh, really and truly, that this is one out of two hundred kids experience this, and it's not it's not that well known and from a pharmacology standpoint there's not really any clear signs of relief, but there is, and you know from your approach, you have the resilience program, and when we 're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'd love for you just to walk us through it, you know one step at a time because I looked at it and it's, you know, it's homeopathy, it's nutrition. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just one thing. It's, It's a methodology that you put in place and you help people to follow, which it sounds like that's the way that to help the body to heal. So we'll come back and we'll learn more about the resilience method.
1: We'll be back after these messages.
0: Cannot live by bread alone. He must have his peanut butter. Peanut butter is a pate of childhood. And it's not just for kids, his dogs love it too. Last night I gave my dog a pill hidden in peanut butter. What's a word for a messy concoction that helps the medicine go down? Sliver sauce. Mice apparently prefer peanut butter to cheese when it comes to luring them into the trap. But there are even more practical uses for peanut butter. Peanut butter contains natural oils, which makes it perfect for removing all kinds of sticky things, like gum stuck in your shoe or in your hair. What's a word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachibutophobia. And according to Barry Goldwater, if you don't mind smelling like peanut butter for two or three days, peanut butter is a darn good shaving cream.
2: It's Marching day.
0: I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words.
1: We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson.
2: So, Jennifer, Dr. Barr. You know, you've were, you've opened up with us on the show, and you've shared so much personal information about what you experienced and what your brother experienced. and And in my head, I'm just came thinking, how did you get through that? I mean, we've talked about yeah. what wasn't there. How did you How did you push through?
1: Well. Um- Like I said, when I was 16, my mom took me to see a psychiatrist, and I ended up getting diagnosed with with, uh, depression, Um, was put on an SSRI, and like many kids with PANS, I did not respond very well to it. I actually got quite elevated and and erratic in the way I was behaving, and so, of course, then they labeled me years later. um, When they looked back at my history, they labeled me as bipolar disorder, Um, and so... It was, uh, it was on lots of different medications because there's lots and lots of side effects. And that's, that's why I was going into naturopathic medicine in the first place and why I was committed to doing, um, that, that practice focused on mental health broadly, um, is one, I didn't have a full understanding. You know, I thought I accepted the label that I was given. I didn't understand that there could have been something else contributing to it, that it was just like, okay, my brain is just quote unquote broken, um, and my brother had similar things happen. You know, he was given lots of different medications, helped to varying degrees and hurt to varying degrees. Um, and I was just w- looking for a better way, Um, especially because I was hoping that I was, would have a family someday. And I knew that there was a strong um, likelihood or genetic susceptibility that this would be something that my kids would have to deal with. And so um I went, you know, I, I was on medications when I started naturopathic medical school and I ended up, um, Going to see my psychiatrist, So I'm a disabled veteran. I was diagnosed with it when I was in the, um, the military, and so I'm a considered disabled veteran as a result. And so I, um, I saw my psychiatrist at the VA, and I said, hey, I would like to know what my options are if I want to have children someday. And the medications that are used to control, you know, quote-unquote bipolar disorder – are um, not something that you can take when you're pregnant, because they are significantly detrimental to a fetus. And so his answer was, well, you should either not get pregnant and think about adopting, um, or you should get electroconvulsive therapy,
2: so oh, ECT wow. or shock
1: therapy, yeah. right? Yeah, so, and like, I had never been hospitalized, I was, I managed to maintain a job, you know, I was, um, didn't get didn't lose my security clearance or anything. didn't lose my job in the navy. got out and then you know worked for the federal government as an Arabic translator for another four years before I went to naturopathic medical school. so like I was somebody who could still sustain you know a responsible adult life and they were telling me I needed to get ECT and that just sounded like bonkers to me. So I was fortunate that I was in this place where I was primed, but like, if I want to have children, I have this really dangerous option as my only option to have my own child. Um, and I went to this conference where uh, a naturopathic doctor presented on treating bipolar disorder with homeopathy. And so homeopathy is something that when I first learned about it, when I went to naturopathic medical school, I it broke my brain and I almost quit naturopathic medical school for, and I'll tell you why. So anybody who's not really familiar with homeopathy, um, it's made for, uh natural substances, the so single substances that are found in nature, but they're made very, very dilute. We now know that the um, homeopathic remedies and the, the dilution process has gone through, because it's not just about diluting, there's a, a an agitation or a succussion, it's called, process associated with it as well. The, in that process, there are nanoparticles formed. And so now we recognize that homeopathy is potentially the original nanomedicine, but I I went to school even before that information had been learned. Um, And so when I went to school, I was just like, I just understood that we were giving people that homeopathy was giving people something that was so dilute, that it was dilute beyond Avogadro's number, which means that there's essentially nothing in it. The reality is we just didn't have the technology to see the tiny particles that were still remaining in it until later. Um, So, being that undergraduate with physiology of neurobiology, I went into Natural Medical School and learned about this, this medicine. I was like, oh my gosh, this is just quack nonsense medicine. I can't believe that this is part of the required program. How could this be a valid program if this is, if this nonsense medicine is part of it? Um and then I did some soul searching and decided, you know, I would take the good with the bad. Not everything is great in the world. Nothing, not everything is bad. Like there's good with bad, with, good and bad with everything. And so I decided to stick with it and then that series of events with that psychiatrist saying I had to get shock therapy and then going to a conference and seeing this person have really great results with my condition um, using homeopathy, I decided to go ahead and give it a try because worst case scenario, I could go back to medications and consider ECT or adoption. And best case scenario, I might actually be able to get off of the medications and have my own child. And so that was how I was willing to start homeopathy. And I didn't think that it was working for a while because I was still on some medication. And so I was a very bad patient and I pretty quickly got like tapered myself off of the medication that I was still taking so that I could see what was doing what. And within a few weeks of being off of the medication, I went um, into a tailspin, started having becoming really, really symptomatic. And um, I was fortunate that I was, you know, had a, a scheduled appointment with my doctor and he told me to go ahead and take another dose of the homeopathic remedy he had recommended. And I am very fortunate that I'm a very fast responder. Not everybody responds as quickly as I do, but I respond within a few hours um, to a dose and I can tell if it's making a difference. And, and it definitely um, settled me down because um, I was in a more elevated state. Um, it definitely settled me down and I was able to go from being really restless and fidgety and I couldn't sit still and having all sorts of grandiose and wild ideas to actually being like calm and stable and able to go and sit still with friends and have dinner and like maintain a conversation and not have like any um anything un- unusual come up. Um and that's when I was like, Okay, there might be something to this, even though I don't understand it, like it clearly seems to be working. <clears throat> and so I then decided I needed to learn how to use it for, um, to help patients, help future patients. Um, and so I I really devoted a ton of time and energy to learning that, um, in a significantly greater amount than the average naturopathic student, um, in addition to my regular naturopathic studies. Um, and so that's how I came to homeopathy. Um, and it was through my own healing journey. It took me about five years to get to the place that I'm, um, would say that I'm fully recovered and I would say that I am fully recovered now because it's been, um, Oh, about almost a decade since my last, you know, flare or episode, whichever you want to call it. Um, my husband who I've been with for, um, I met him only nine years ago in a couple of months, uh, has never seen me have an episode. Um, and now thankfully I have a daughter, um, that would not have been possible had I not, i been willing to take that leap um, to try homeopathy. Um, so it took five years, lots of ups and downs in that process um, because homeopathy is not a linear healing um, route. It's uh, two to three steps forward and one step back or four to five steps forward and nine steps back sometimes. But over time, you know, you climb that that mountain, that proverbial mountain and, and the ups and downs eventually get you to that top. And um, so that's how homeopathy came to me. And then when I saw the power um, that it had, I really needed to to focus on helping other people using it. Um, and then it became so clear how powerful and how useful it is in pants and pandas because so much of what's happening. it's so complex, it involves the whole body. and that's one thing that's beautiful about homeopathy. homeopathy is is a single medicine that that addresses the person as a whole. It recognizes that all of our parts are connected. and so, my upset stomach and my anxiety that I'm having are actually connected. They're not separate and they don't need to be treated separately because they're part of the same internal imbalance. or that dis- disruption of the vital force. Um, so homeopathy actually addresses the whole person, which is so useful when you're looking at something that has such broad reaching, you know, whole system impacts like Tams and Tandos does. Um, and it's really helpful because we don't, We're not going in to try and kill something. We're not going in to try and suppress something with homeopathy. We're just stimulating the body's innate ability to heal itself. And so um, we don't have to try and figure out exactly what's happening here and here and here. Um, And we're not chasing one bug and then another bug and another bug. Because like I said, in that first part, if somebody has one trigger, if they find out that strep is their, their first trigger, they're usually going to have other things that they're triggered by as well. Mycoplasma and Mold and environmental toxicants because it's more about their immune system having a misdirected response rather than the bug being the problem. If the bug was the problem, everybody who got that bug would have the same symptoms. It's the susceptibility and to this in misdirected immune response that's the problem. And homeopathy is the one thing that really truly addresses that susceptibility. Um, and so it, it just ends up being really, really fantastic.
2: Well, um, you know, There's also a role, I think I saw on your website, that nutrition plays. Is that correct? Uh,
1: To an extent. So nutrition, with homeopathy, it's not um, just this medicine that we give. Um, But um, so with homeopathy, we have to remove anything as an obstacle to health. And so nutrition can play a role when it comes to um Making sure that we're eating just a generally healthy diet, because if you're eating a really poor diet and you don't have the basic nutrients that you need, then it the, doesn't matter how much you nudge the body to do the healing and the, the repair work that it needs to do. If it doesn't have the foundational blocks to do it, it can't do it. Um, we really, though, especially with, with work focusing with the Pans and Pandas community, um, and especially with that piece that we talked about earlier, the ARFID, the Avoid Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, we don't do a ton of like strict diets other than to help people, um, you know, just where they need to reduce inflammatory foods that we, we can. I mean, occasionally we'll recommend that people for a short time stop eating foods that they have a, a verified sensitivity to or that they have a clear reaction to. Um, but homeopathy can actually reduce the susceptibility to that reaction as well, that sensitivity. Um, so sometimes we will use, um, nutritional recommendations, but for the most part, we recognize that these are kids that are struggling a lot anyway, that might be on really, really strict diets, um, that are self-imposed and that are pathologic, um, because of the ARFID, um, or that, um, if you put them on a really, really strict diet, one, it, if it's gonna exacerbate any OCD and make them feel even more socially isolated, um, et cetera. So we always take a look at the totality of the person. So while we do occasionally Take a look at that. Um, it is not the mainstay. The mainstay really is the homeopathy. And the thing that's so great about homeopathy as well is that it, um, it, because it's stimulating the body to heal when you are in a healthier state, when you're, when you're pushing toward health, you tend to choose healthier foods and have more, um, acceptance of healthier foods and receptivity to foods. Um, and this is really important for those kids that have like very, very narrow diets.
2: Well, you know, the the thing about homeopathy is it's kind of confusing because there's, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it, you can get homeopathic products everywhere, but how do you yes. know what's right for you?
1: Yeah, and that's really, it's so tricky because there's literally thousands of homeopathic products that you can use. So it has to be... Individualized and we recommend especially, you know, for like acute things, we think it's great to like take, grab a book and see what might be a good useful thing for like a cold or a cough, you know, that kind of thing, a rash, um, for like acute care. When you're dealing with complex chronic illness, we absolutely recommend that you work with an, um, experienced provider and specifically somebody who has experience with the thing that you're struggling with because there's thousands of remedies that you can choose from and you have to find the, the best fit for the totality of your symptoms as it currently stands. And the the remedy that will, it's not like one remedy that you need for your entire life. And it's not like astrology, like you were born needing this remedy. Um, And if you get this remedy, then everything will be perfect and you will be a superhero. It's not like that. We have to meet the body where it's at and consider its environments as well. So the remedy, the homeopathic medicines that can be used to stimulate healing and move people through the healing process will change over time for the individual. I was probably on probably 30 or more remedies during the course of my five years of healing. Um, and so uh, you know we could see lower, lower numbers and sometimes maybe even higher numbers of remedies that people would need to complete the healing process. Um, so it, it's about matching the most unique symptoms that somebody is experiencing that are specifically to that person, their individualized presentation all pans and pandas and anything else that's going on because, again, the body's connected. So if somebody's having OCD and they're also having constipation, we need to know about both of those things. If they're having migraines and rages, we need to know about both. Um, and so that's how we, we sort of do this, like, triangulation with all of the symptoms to find the one best homeopathic medicine that can treat all of those unique symptoms and that unique experience um, that somebody is having as a result of their susceptibility. Um, and so it takes a lot of skill and understanding of the thousands of homeopathic medicines to choose from and what they can be used to treat. It takes a lot of skill in understanding the condition that you're treating to know what's common in it and what's unique to this person um, and the management aspect too. So knowing when you need to make an adjustment, how frequently you need to dose, when you need to, to change things up. Um, because, again, these kids are really, really sensitive, and they can, even though a homeopathy is, by and large, very, very safe. You can take it when you're pregnant. You can take it when you're breastfeeding. Newborns can take it. Um, very, very safe. Um it can cause a healing reaction in the body where things get a little bit worse before they get better when you first start a homeopathic remedy. And when you're dealing with something as, as chronic and as severe as pain, that can be really challenging if you're not working with a professional who can help you navigate that.
2: So, you know, I've, I've heard about homeopathy for, for years and years and have used it. And one of the questions that I get asked when when I talk about different approaches is, Does homeopathy hold up to research?
1: So, yes, it does hold up to research. If you expand your mind to understand that you can't expect homeopathy to hold up to research with a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover trial. Excuse me.
2: Well, that makes sense because, you know, pharmaceutical companies have a tremendous amount of resources that they they utilize to put that type of studies in place, and for for when I look at yeah. the Brain Performance Center, I mean, I couldn't do a study like that. I don't have the, I don't have unlimited resources.
1: Well, the resources are one because with homeopathic homeopathic medicines are made from things that you can find in nature. You know, you can't patent onion or elderberry or you know any of the, any number of things that homeopathic remedies are made from, and so. There's not the funding for it, but even if you had the funding, even if we had an angel investor or somebody who just loved homeopathy and gave all of their billions to homeopathic research, we would still have to study homeopathy in a different way because you can't say we've got 10 people here in the study and they all have PANS, so they're all getting Remedy X because Remedy X might not be effective for any of those people if it doesn't match their individual symptoms. And so the only way to do it, um, there there are ways to to do research with homeopathy where people get the right remedy for themselves. They get the individualized treatment, and then they get put into like placebo versus um, what we call verum or true group. Um, and in fact, I recently participated in a study as um, uh, a research study that is still being um, finalized. So we don't have the results of that yet. But I'm hopeful that it's going to be really great um, and have that that you can share with your audience at some point some point in the future. Um, so there are ways to do it, but it has to be—you still have to have that individualized care um, to get somebody the um, the right remedy to have any chance that it's going to stand up and show just how effective it truly can be.
2: So when you find the right product for for that meets uh, you know matches all the symptoms, is it usually you stay on that product from for a substantial amount of time, or as the body shifts? Did things? Some things get better, and some things get worse, and you have to, you know, come at it from a different perspective.
1: Yep it's a it's a constantly changing thing. So occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally we can find where one remedy, uh, one homeopathic medicine, is all that is needed uh, to get one person with various various different potencies or preparations of it um, that they can just found the same homeopathic medicine. Um, and and complete the healing journey that's very rare though usually people need multiple different remedies one at a time because you can only be on one homeopathic remedy at a time um, and have it be effective in that healing way rather than a palliative way Um, and so what we'll see is that we will almost uncover a layer so we'll we'll sometimes people like to use onion I don't like to use onion because we're not stinky vegetables so I use an analogy of like sedimentary rock where like we at our core are this beautiful diamond that's just been covered up by layers of dirt and more dirt and rock and you name it. And so we have to carefully remove every layer um, of dirt or rock. And once we remove one layer, something else is going to be exposed that we can then treat. And the, and the, the type of work that we're going to need, like we might need just a broom to remove the, the top layer, like dirt and sand. And then we're going to need a chisel to remove the next layer, which is like harder sandstone. And then beneath that is limestone and we might need a, um, a, uh, a jackhammer or something. And we might, and then beneath that might be granite and we need a pick or, you know, so like different tools are needed to get through the different layers because they're just, they're, they're different. Um, and so we also have the susceptibility to things changing in our environment. So I could be doing great on a homeopathic remedy and then find out that, um, somebody really important to me has passed and and that sets me into a different state that needs to be addressed, um, to continue that healing process. Or, um, I end up with a a significant physical trauma or a really severe illness that needs to be addressed as well. And so, um, the ways that our body interacts, you know, with acute things, like acute stresses, acute traumas, acute illness, um, it, it can impact that overall, um, expression of our susceptibility. And so we absolutely, See a lot of shifting and moving um, as we're also seeing those ups and downs on the, the healing journey.
2: Well, it's interesting to me because, you know, we've talked a lot about homeopathic medicine, but I haven't heard any side effects. Are there side effects that can be associated?
1: No, there aren't side effects with homeopathic medicine again because it's that really, really dilute form where we're only really getting nanoparticles. The most common thing that some people would, would say would be. Um, it's not really a side effect. It's, it's more of a healing response, but we're the, we have what's called a therapeutic aggravation, where symptoms get a little bit worse before they get better at the very beginning of starting a homeopathic medicine. Um, so that can happen. Um, and occasionally we can see, when we're talking about like, people who have chronic illness, um, occasionally we can see <clears throat> um, some symptoms that are um, part of their susceptibility that aren't fully expressed yet, um, come to the front with, with a remedy that's close but not quite right. Um, I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here. If anybody thinks that they might be dealing with cancer pandas and they want to learn more, I can share a resource with you that um, I help teach people about homeopathy for free. Um, if that's okay with you, I'd be happy to share that. Um, I think that's and, great. Uh,
2: I'd, a- I'd like to ask you to repeat that again.
1: Okay. So um, I, if anybody is interested in learning more about homeopathy, because I'm starting to get in the weeds and we're just about out of time, um, and homeopathy takes like years and years to become an expert in to really understand. And so I have a a Facebook group where I educate people about homeopathy for pans and pandas. Um, It is only open to uh, parents or primary caregivers of people who think that their child has pans or pandas. Um, But I do regular education, tons of videos. I have a whole mini course in there. Um and go in and, and educate people weekly like tons and tons of resources um, to help people learn more about homeopathy and specifically for pans and pandas, so that would be a great place to go um so the um the Facebook group you just go into Facebook and, and search for homeopathy for pans and pandas um and uh, that's where you'll find me spending a lot of time.
2: Well, that's a great gift. Thank you so much for offering that up because I think what I deal with in my clinic, and it's certainly not pans and pandas, but people. They're overwhelmed. They don't understand what their yeah. issues are, and they, they've tried so hard to understand them, and they can't. That makes them then. That's frustrating. Then they get that negative yeah. self talk going. You know, well, gee, you're not even smart enough to figure it out. No man, no wonder you're, you're not feeling good. And so, offering that as as a resource is is a really that's lovely. That really and truly well, is it, because.
1: Aside from the, you know, the education component that I provided there, um, it's a way, a place for parents to connect with each other and support each other through the healing process. Because like I said, it's a lot of ups and you downs. It's not a linear healing uh, journey with homeopathy or with anything really. Um, it can be really hard. So it's a place for people to go and connect with others who understand and get support when they're having their lows and be the support when they're having their highs. And there's about 13 I think 13,500 people or so in the group right now. So it's actually a pretty um, robust group and lots and lots of regular engagement and support. It's
2: pretty pretty
1: powerful, actually.
2: That's great. And sometimes, you know, just connecting with somebody that sounds like, gosh, they sound like they've been through like 95% of what I have. Well, that makes me feel better already to think that I'm not all alone, that I'm not the only one out there. So I think that's that in itself can can provide substantial benefit. You know, in the last couple of minutes that we have, just the, your closing comments. Because listening to you, you've been through your own journey, and it wasn't real easy. You had your motivation. You wanted to have be able to have a child, and that was your motivation, and that certainly inspired you. I mean, but what what words of wisdom do you have to leave with folks?
1: So for people who think that maybe they have some alarm bells going off and think maybe that this is something that's going on with their kiddos, um, my my word of wisdom would be what I hear from all of the parents in this group, like thirteen thousand plus people is that they wish that they had started with homeopathy first. Um, because the the ones that that recognized it with like, if they have a couple of kids, the first one didn't go through homeopathy first, the ones who went through homeopathy first um, tends to get better faster um, and easier and so Um, definitely if you think that there are some, some alarm bells going off, um, do what you can to learn more about homeopathy as a a solution and talk to your kids about it as best you can. Um, if you are concerned at all that like, you know, maybe you're not sure, but there's something going on with your, your kiddo, or maybe they've been given a diagnosis of ADHD or bipolar disorder or oppositional defiant disorder or Tourette's or OCD, Maybe it's not actually just that. There might be something more to it that could give you some answers um, that will give you some relief in, at some
2: point in the near future. So what I hear you say is that be be use your power of observation and look yeah. at everything that's going on with, within your child, not just what's been. Because we all want labels, you know, and, and we're yeah. all sometimes too quick to slap labels on something. And I'll, I steer clear of that. But it's Be attentive, ask questions, investigate, talk about it. Most important thing I think I heard you say is talk to your child about it. Listen to what they have to say, because if you create, if you open that door and you create that feeling of comfort, they'll be a lot more inclined to do it. Thank you so much, Dr. Barr. And for anybody that wants to find you, they can Google Dr. Jennifer Barr, B-A-H-R.
0: On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on
2: iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com.